A little review. The Sermon on the Plain is located in what gospel lesson? Luke. Sermon on the Mount is located in what gospel? Right. Where does it start? What chapter? Five. Where does it end? What chapter? Eight. Right. It doesn't go through eight. It just goes to eight. Right. Very good. See, this is an interesting thing about learning theory. If you ask questions in the beginning and then you leave a little time and then you ask questions later, you actually learn better than if you had, than if you had just been reading that over and over again for 10 minutes. It, it, this will be more in your long-term memory now, so just think about that. I've been doing a lot of reading on learning theory because there's a lot of teaching that goes on in worship, and so we're trying to do some things to help get these things into your, into your system a little bit. So I want to read to you today from chapter 6, and I'm going to read a couple of different versions because it's just, it's fun to read a couple of different versions, but I I am going to preface this by saying last week we talked about this particular part of this passage was beware of practicing your piety before others to be seen by them, you know, so whenever you give alms and all that sort of thing. And we skipped the section on prayer. So now we're, and that was just sort of in the center of what I preached about last week. So now we're going to go to Matthew 6, and I'm going to start with verse 5. I think this starts with verse 9, but I'm going to read a little bit first, and then we'll get into the rest of it. So Jesus said this, and whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him." Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now I want to read to you from the message translation. And when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you will begin to sense his grace. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you're dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, 
you can pray very simply like this. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best as above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You're ablaze with beauty. Yes, yes, yes. In prayer, there is a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you will cut yourself off from God's part. I think it's always fun and enlightening to read our scripture in, in some different translations, just because you hear, you hear it differently. The message is much more of a modern you know, paraphrase and really gets at some things and might be a little shocking at times because of the language is so different. What, what is interesting to me is how many Christians, how many of us, especially in the mainline denominations, will say something to the effect of, I don't know how to pray, or, and, and especially, I don't know how to pray aloud. Many of the folks who get called to be elders in the church, one of the things that they realize very quickly is that my expectation is that they will pray aloud that they will learn how to do that. And we give them lots of practice in doing that. And again, it's not, it doesn't have to be like the prayers in the prayer book, which oftentimes have a lot of language that they're really long and they're beautiful because someone sat down and wrote them, you know, it's poetry or, or whatever. They can just be very simple. I can't remember who the writer is, but basically she said, you know, the, the, the best prayers are thank you, thank you, thank you and help, help, help. <laughs> and so, so when Jesus comes to teach the disciples how to pray, again, this is a long tradition. The rabbis have, when you have a particular teacher, each one of the rabbis might have a particular prayer that they might teach to their particular followers that taught about what they thought about God and how, and that perspective of God. And so in this, in this passage, uh, as the sort of the preface to it is all about how apparently the Gentiles who are praying to, to their gods use lots of words and repeat words over and over and over again. The, the Greek word in there is, is really often used for stammering or stuttering, though, though the way it gets translated here is more about just the repetitive nature of words that are sort of nonsense, that don't have anything to do. They're just piling up words because they think that somehow it gets them in good with God. I think it's interesting that in the message translation, he translates that one thing about people have all kinds of programs and ways to have you get what you need from God. There's a real movement out there that where, well, if I just say these affirmations all the time, if I just do, if I just do these things every day, then I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get those things. Those things are going to come to me. And it was just fascinating reading that, the way he translated it, and thinking about, about all the ways that we, even in today's modern era, that we often think that we can manipulate the things of God in order to get what we want. And then I read this. 
Don't do all of that. Why? Because your father knows what you need before you ask. Just let that sit for a minute. Your father knows what you need before you even ask. So prayer isn't to inform God of our needs. God already knows. Prayer is to help us get the focus off of ourselves and onto what God might be putting right in front of us and offering to us. I mean, I don't know about you, but I know what I need, right? I mean, I'm, and I'm also told whenever I turn on the TV and there are ads that come on, I'm told exactly what I need, you know, and I want those things. I do. I, and so I know what I need. But what if I listened to that piece of that scripture passage and began to think about dependence on God and trust in God in a way that trust that God already knows exactly what I need. And as I live my life, if I begin to just walk the path one step at a time, trusting that whatever I need is going to come, whatever I truly need, not what I, not what I think the TV wants me to have, not, what, not, not some sort of egotistical thing that I'm putting together in my own mind, but that the things that I need and the opportunities that I need are going to appear. Not because I've said some magical formula, not because I've done something just perfectly, but just because I've begun to get the focus off of myself and onto God. To be open to what that is. It's one of the hardest things, I think, especially in our culture. Because the focus is always on us. When we talk about social media, we talk about all all of these things that create great anxiety in us and great depression in many people because, you know, the focus is always on us. And basically, oftentimes, when most people look at Facebook or Instagram or whatever, they're like, oh, well, my life's not that good. There must be something wrong with me. So now the focus is on me. Well, I need to, I need to get me some of that. I've got I've to be like that person. I need to have my hair look like that. I need to have my body look like that. I need to, I need to go on those trips. I need, I need all that sort of thing. And now the focus is all on me. And I've forgotten about perhaps what God desires. Not just for me, but for the kingdom. But for the kingdom This prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is also found in a a document called the Didache, uh, which is an ancient document that's really, the Didache is is basically the teaching, didactic, and it gets translated that way. In the Didache, it said, you should pray this prayer three times a day. Well, why three times a day? Because that's what the Jews did. They prayed the Shema three times a day, which is the Lord is one, the Lord is God alone. That particular prayer, they were, they were commanded to pray that three times a day. And so this sort of, the Didache sort of leans into that, into that practice because they were, of course, a lot of Jewish folks who were converting to follow Jesus. And so this was a way of, of helping them live into that. So it's pretty interesting. And so as we, as we walk through this, this prayer a little bit, Jesus is like, just, just, it doesn't have to be all these words. It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be all of that. It doesn't, you don't have to just pile up things. God already knows what you need. So, but I'm going to teach you a prayer. 
And so he says, our Father in heaven. Well, the, the Greek there for father is pater. I mean, it gets, um, it's pretty straightforward. We think that I mean, Jesus may have even been speaking in Aramaic, and so then it gets translated into Greek. And, and, we, and, and we know in other places when in, in the Aramaic it was Abba for father, and Abba was very much an affectionate term from a child to a, to a father, to a parent. It was a very affectionate, very, very close term. So, so you begin to think about it. This isn't like, you know, you know, father, like, you know, Father Fred or Father George, if you grew up Catholic, you know, it, it, it's very much more of a, I don't want to say daddy, but it, but it definitely has, has much more of an intimate relationship to it, even though probably when we pray it, our Father in heaven, it feels like it's big. But I want you to think about, this is, this is a personal God. This is a personal relationship. Even though in this prayer, most of the time, we're talking about the kingdom and we're talking about what's coming, it's a big prayer, but it's also very deeply personal. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. As I said, like hallowed is like awesome be your name. One commentator said that it's basically like, God, vindicate your name. Let your name be known. Back in, in ancient times, if, if you knew the name of something, that meant you really knew it. The Jews wouldn't even speak the name of God, still won't to this day, most of them. They wouldn't say Yahweh. In Jewish writings today, they put a G, a dash, and a D because they won't even write the name of God. And it's just knowing the name is a very powerful thing. And so in this prayer, it's almost like Jesus is saying, we want God, just vindicate your name. Let, us, let your name be known. You know, be who you are. Show us who you are. And so as we pray that, we're sort of lifting up God and, and in all the wonderful ways that, that God is. And then your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, taking the focus off of our kingdom because we're all being taught to create our own little kingdoms and queendoms and dukedoms and whatever else dumbs we can, can create. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, above below as above. But we're also talking about what we might call the eschatological kingdom. I know you all know what that means. Eschatology is about the end of things, like how things, how things are set in the end. And, and so we're talking about the consummation of the kingdom, when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Again, it's not that it's not like many of us have been taught or about still being taught today that, that we're just in a hold, you know, those of us who are saved or we're, we're in a holding pattern here until we get jetted off to heaven. I mean, the scripture says that God will make God's home among the people again. In the Old Testament, there, there's a place where God says, I'm living among you. I mean, in, in the Garden of Eden, God walked with them when they were in the wilderness, God was with them through that. And then it says in the end, in, in, in the book of Revelation, it says that the kingdom will come in its fullness and it will come on earth. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. It will all be renewed and redeemed. And so we're talking about your will be done, your kingdom come, your eschatological kingdom, the consummation of your kingdom. 
That it would come, that it would be realized in its fullness. That, that time, that place where we believe that all relationships are set right. Everything is redeemed. Everything is renewed. Even the dirt that has been barren. I love that image. Even the dirt that has been barren and not fruitful will be able to produce fruit again. Give us this day our daily bread. It's, a, it's an interesting, this is a, this is a hotly contested phrase. Because it can mean, because now we're turning from sort of this big overarching kingdom oriented thing to, oh, okay, well, just give me, the, give me my food every day. Give me what I need every day, which is a really wonderful prayer to pray, right? Because we don't, even though we think that tomorrow will be the same as today, it may not be. But there's also a sense in, in some of the translation that it is, give us Give us that eschatological, here's that word again, bread, the bread of heaven that we will receive then. Give it to us now. Meaning, let us have a taste of the kingdom that's coming. It's an interesting way of thinking about that. Let me taste and see that God is good here and now so that I can live into that here and now even as I'm praying for it to come. So as we, when we come around this table, we always talk about that this is a foretaste of the feast that is to come. It's a foretaste of the feast that is to come. That God's grace, this, this, great, this gift is part of our daily bread. It's part of that, but it's also leading us to think about the kingdom and how that might manifest in our lives today. Can we taste it today? Can we taste the kingdom now so that we might live into the kingdom now, even as it comes? And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. That's the NRSV translation. In, apparently in Aramaic language, there's a real sense that, that sin is a debt that's owed to God. And so when we use the word debts, it is like we've taken out a loan. Like we've, we've borrowed from God these, you know, we've taken, we've taken from God. And so then when God forgives our debts, it's like he's making us whole again. But it can be, you know, our trespasses, our sins. In Luke, it gets it's translated differently. And so all of that language is helpful. And you, can, you could really dig into it if you wanted to, but... But Presbyterians locked on to the Matthew version and, and debts and debtors. That's sort of been, always been our thing. And, you know, so for, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's an interesting translation there because it assumes, it, it sort of assumes that we're forgiving people as well. That being forgiven people, we forgive. That in a sense, we're, we pay it forward, if that makes any sense. Later, he get, it gets a little more F then, which is a little, a little tricky. But. And do not bring us, do not bring us into the time of trial, uh, but rescue us from the evil one or from evil. The, the, the word there, it's an interesting word, rescue us from the evil one from, or, or evil or the evil one. Um, the word is pornea, which is where we get the word porn, which is really interesting to me. That in the Greek, it's, it's about evil. It's about not good things. So it's just fascinating that that catches up. But do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. It's fascinating here. Do not lead us to testing that is beyond our endurance. That is how one commentator translated it. Do not lead us into testing that is beyond our endurance. 
this commentator said, God does not tempt us, but God will allow us to be tested. I thought that was an interesting and subtle twist. Because some people will say, well, God's testing me. Well, this commentator would say, no, God's not testing you, but God's allowing you to be tempted. God's allowing you to be tempted. This is, a, this is an opportunity for you to grow in faith and, and hope. And what we pray in that prayer is, please, God, don't give me something that's beyond my faith in there. Don't give me something that's going to crush me, basically. Because I'm sure, and as I look around the congregation, there are stories in our lives that have definitely tested our faith. And I know for some of us, almost crushed it. Or maybe even for a time felt like it crushed it. But somewhere on the line, it, God continues to, to work on us and, and bring, us, bring us back into that. So I love that. I love that particular phrase. And then, as you know, we, we layer on some other language in the Lord's Prayer that, that we do. But it's not, it's not actually in the Scripture. It's just, it becomes more liturgical so that it makes it a, full, a full-on prayer that seems to work in Scripture. And then, and then there's this little tag at the end, which isn't part of the prayer, but it's, but it's almost like either Matthew or, or Jesus is explaining part of this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It feels like it's an if-then statement. If you forgive, then you get forgiveness. If you forgive, then you get forgiveness. The problem with that is, is that the rest of the scriptures basically, as we, as we read that, basically say that God's forgiveness is always a priori. It's always before. But I think what this is saying is, is that we can't fully enjoy the forgiveness that we, we were given if we're holding grudges, if we are unable to forgive ourselves, which is probably the hardest person to forgive, and others. I just want you to think about that a little bit. If you're not feeling like you're able to to believe or enjoy the forgiveness that I preach about here on a weekly basis, where's the forgiveness in your life? Where where are there things that you have not forgiven yourself for? Things that you've done or things you haven't done? Or something you made up in your head. I mean, we mess with ourselves all kinds. And then is, are there other people in your circles that you haven't forgiven? Maybe it's time to think about that. Maybe it's time to work through that. Maybe it's time to pray simply about that. We cannot enjoy God's forgiveness without extending forgiveness to others. I think that's powerful. That's powerful. And wow, imagine, imagine if Christians... I mean, just the Christians, you know, like began to live something like that. Can you imagine how our, our language would be different with each other? How we might treat one another with a little bit more care and concern? How, how we might look, again, like I, I preach about all the time, we look for the dignity in people. We get the focus off of ourselves and on to God. To pray this prayer is to be one who is involved in God's great drama, great redemptive drama, of which Jesus is at the center of. So, in some ways, we wrote we 
pray this prayer, I think, sometimes, especially in worship, because we do it every single Sunday. And I encourage you to add it into your daily prayer life. But perhaps after today, you can, you can maybe pray it with a little bit of fear and trembling, or with a little bit of a deeper understanding, or a little bit more of an openness. And maybe you just focus on one phrase for a whole week, and just pray that as part of your prayer, maybe on your way to work, or, or if, if you have a meditation time, or, or right, before you, right before you go into a meeting where you just want to thrash somebody, you know, or whatever. I mean, that it becomes more a part of you and opens you up to, to take the focus off of you and put the focus on God and put the focus on God's kingdom. Because that's the gift here, is that God invites us through God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's redemptive nature into this great redemptive drama that is still going on. And we as the church have the opportunity as individuals and corporately to live into that path each and every day. And that's something that we as Westminster Church seek to try to do. You know, by using our facility to seek to bless the community in the ways that we can, by doing crazy things like ha- having an opera here, by, by working with those who are in recovery, by working with school children, by working with immigrants and refugees, by feeding the hungry, and then all the things that all of you do out in your lives in the ways that you volunteer and give of yourself for others who, who can't pay you back that you partner with other organizations, other people, that you're living out God's great redemptive drama. And that's what we're called to do. And so as you walk away today, I just want you to leave with a couple of things. You are forgiven. You are free. And your Father knows what you need before you ask. May your faith grow so that you not only just believe that, but that you live it. In Jesus' name, amen.